This is Pain Refrain. Well, welcome back to another edition of Pain Reframed. We are just delighted to have Dr. Roger Chow joining us uh, on the call today. And uh, Dr. Chow, would you mind telling uh, the listeners a little bit about you, where you're, where you're, you're currently at, and the work that you're doing? Sure. Um, thanks for having me on the podcast. So um, I'm Roger Chow. I'm at Oregon Health and Science University. My clinical background is uh, internal medicine. I also I also do health services research. I direct the uh, Evidence-Based Practice Center here at OHSU, the Pacific Northwest Evidence-Based Practice Center. We do scientific reviews and often work on guidelines, including the uh, 2016 CDC guideline on opioids. Um, And I also see patients. I'm a primary care provider and um, have had a practice for uh, 20 uh, years. Well, thanks for that, Dr. Chow. And I I must tell you, your work has been instrumental in in the field of, of pain management and trying to you know move the needle towards you know safer and more effective ways of managing pain and so you're I, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind starting by just kind of commenting and uh, on your recent uh, editorial that you published uh, regarding where we kind of stand in 2019 around opioid use in this country sure yeah so we um I and a couple of uh, colleagues at the CDC uh, were authors on an editorial that was uh, a perspective, I should say, that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. I think that was uh, one or two weeks ago. And it was really trying to, you know, kind of take a step back and look at where we are in terms of opioid prescribing. I, I think the I was an author on the CDC guideline that came out in 2016 which I think has been, you know, kind of a watershed document in terms of impacting clinical policy and as well as clinical practice. And so the, the perspective was kind of an opportunity to step back and look at how things have played out. I think that the, um, the, the guideline, as I said, has had a big impact. A lot of people have been you know, have uh, enacted policies, you know, which are attributed to the guideline. Um, Clinical practice has changed. I think the way we prescribe opioids now is different than even just a few years ago. But uh, we also wanted to be clear about what the guideline um, says and what it doesn't say. There have been, you know, policies attributed to the guideline that are actually you know, not in the guideline. So things like requiring all patients to be below a certain um, opioid dose or uh, requiring tapers in all patients, those kinds of things, they're really not part of the guideline. So we wanted to be clear about what the guideline says. Um, And we also want to encourage, you know, further efforts to um, implement what the guideline does say, um, so to try to, you know, help um, move things uh, forward as we try to get a better handle 
uh, opioid prescribing and chronic pain. Yeah, Dr. Chow, thanks so much, and and thank you for you know both the 2016 paper and the more recent editorial. Certainly, it's influenced our ability to have conversations, and especially that 2016 paper was a wonderful kind of summary of of where we are and our understanding of of where we went too far and where where work needs to be done. Um, I guess my big question is, you know, having read that more recent paper, it, it sounds as though the, the general feeling was that policies have maybe swung a little bit too far on the pendulum. Is that fair to say that we've seen, I know in Oregon in particular, there was some legislation coming through that was pretty aggressive from, from a standpoint of uh, ha- prescribing practices and, and having to get everybody off opioids. Uh, is your overall feeling that we've swung a little heavy and now need to bring it back? Or are there just certain areas that you feel there were some distinct misunderstandings? Yeah. So I, I, I think... First, I think it's help helpful to kind of think about, you know, chronic pain patients that, you know, there, there's there's several categories. And, you know, one category is people who aren't on opioids who have chronic pain, which may be managed by other ways. And the question is really, do you start opioids or not? I, I think that that group of patients is a lot different and maybe a lot more straightforward than people who have been on opioids um, often for many years and maybe on very high doses. And I think that's a much more challenging situation. And, and I think that's where some of the policy efforts, you know, have maybe misinterpreted or misapplied what the guideline says. And, and I, I should say that a lot of the policies have really been in response to what is a, you know, really critical public health issue. I mean, the, the, the impact of prescription opioids in terms of, you know, mortality and substance use disorder and um, all the other things that come along with it uh, have really been quite staggering. You know, we have, you know, more evidence that the uh, benefits of opioids are really not as large as we would have liked them to be. In, in most studies, they're actually quite small or, and often clinically insignificant. And so, um, I think our understanding of the science has involved about the benefits and harms, and it really does warrant a much more cautious approach. Now, that being said, the properties of opioids in people who have been on them for a long time, you know, can make it very difficult to decrease doses or taper people off. And that's one of the things we really try to emphasize is that having a policy that is predicated on a strict dose limit. In some cases, there are policies that say for certain chronic pain conditions, you shouldn't receive opioids at all, or you need to be taken off of opioids. You know, those are things that really the guideline does not say to do. I mean, there's no good evidence about impacts of routinely tapering patients or forcing them to come off of opioids. And what the guideline actually says to do is to do an individualized risk assessment. And so that's really, I think, the main the, the major group where we um, uh, wanted to clarify, you know, what the guideline av- advises. Uh, you know, I, I think this is one of the problems when things, you know, go from kind of the clinical realm to the policy realm is that, you know, policy is often kind of a blunt instrument. Um, it can be quite difficult to build in a lot of the stuff that we do, you know, clinically in terms of individualizing uh, and doing patient-centered care. 
And so this is kind of the real challenge is that, you know, from a, from a policy standpoint, it's very easy to say, you know, 90 milligrams is too high. But from a clinical perspective, we know that there are a lot of other factors that you need to consider uh, before making that decision. And so, you know, trying to, you know, strike that balance because we really do want to, you know, reduce harms of opioids, reduce unnecessary opioid use. Um, but at the same time, we don't want to harm patients who are doing well, who are being appropriately monitored, who don't have signs of, you know, a use disorder or, or uh, other problems with their opioids. Um, and, and I think that's one of the big messages we were trying to get across. You know, uh, Roger, as you're talking, it, it struck me again, the challenge of, you know, creating a policy that can that can be used uh, in the care of individual patients is, you know, clearly a challenge. And I guess I, I'm always curious, again, to to get your thoughts and, and perspectives on, you know, as we look back here in 2019 and from, from the acute perspective and knowing your work in acute back pain and the overutilization of imaging, et cetera, you know, you know, I, I ask myself this, and maybe I'm too far on the other side. You know, was there ever uh, a use for someone with acute back pain to have been described an opioid drug, at least uh, in that first uh, line of care, and for and at least in that for anything over a few days of 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 a problem? I'm curious if you your thoughts on that. Yeah. So this this is. You know, a, a lot of the efforts up to now have really focused on chronic pain and using opioids long term. And I, where things are moving is towards, you know, how do we use opioids for acute pain? And, and part of the, a lot of this is based on, you know, data suggesting that how we use opioids for acute pain often has an influence on long term use, right? You have to, you know, start the opioid sometime, and, and oftentimes it is started with an acute pain episode, and then that can lead to long-term use, and, and we're learning some of these connections. The, the other big concern, of course, is with unused opioids and the, um, the risk that those can be used by people who they're not intended for, so the opioids in the medicine cabinet that you know family members or friends um, may have access to. So th this is really where we're moving, and, and there have been you know, there's quite a few efforts actually trying to understand, you know, appropriate doses after surgery for dental procedures, for low back pain, etc. You know, for low back pain, it, it's actually surprising when you look at the, so just, just for some perspective, hydrocodone, right, which is, you know, part of Vicodin and other pain pills is the number one prescribed drug in the United States and it has been for many years. Uh, we use something like 99% of the world's um, hydrocodone. And so, so it's an extremely frequently used medication, and low back pain is one of the most common reasons why it's used. But if you actually look for studies on the effectiveness of, of opio any opioid, including hydrocodone, for acute low back pain, it's actually quite limited. Um, there are also very few studies comparing opioids versus non-opioid medications. In fact, there was one study, I think it was led by Benjamin Friedman, that compared uh, an opioid versus uh, an NSAID, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, and found that the effects were actually quite similar. 
And so I, I think that there, there's always been an assumption that uh, opioids are extremely effective for acute pain. We used to have similar assumptions about opioids and chronic pain. I think as we're getting more evidence about this, we're, we're learning maybe those benefits are not as large as we expected, that there are alternatives, that not everybody requires opioids. We actually have studies that enable us to predict how much, you know, opioid a person will require after a surgery so that we're not giving them, you know, 30 days of medication when they only need three or four days. And and I, I think for low back pain especially, this is one where, you know, the emphasis has really been on using non-opioid alternatives as first line. And, and I will say again that there are situations where, you know, I mean, I, I have patients who sometimes come to me who are in excruciate, you know, they have a herniated disc, they're in excruciating pain, they can't even move. And, you know, that's that's the kind of patient who will not be enrolled in a randomized trial. An opioid is, uh, in my opinion, an appropriate medication to use. Um, and they're not going to be part of, you know, a standard guideline. This is, again, this is part of where individualization of care and, you know, using your clinical knowledge kind of comes in. Um, but we can still use principles about, you know, not prescribing large amounts and close follow-up and those kinds of things to ensure that that person doesn't, you know, go on to using opioids long-term for really what should be a short-term problem. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Chow. That's that's great insight, kind of now covering uh, both the, the nuances of the chronic pain patient and then talking a bit about the, the acute onset uh, decision-making process. I, I guess what I'm really curious about now is you, know, you probably, as much as anybody, if not more than anybody, have a, a great idea on the entire the totality of the evidence that's out there, and you're currently in clinical practice, so that gives you a really unique perspective in the real world of how this stuff plays out. And I guess I'm wondering, where, where would you like to see this go from here? Here. You know, what do you feel that we need more of now? Is it is it more trials trying to tease out which of those chronic pain patients are okay continuing meds? Is it is it more time spent getting clinicians sort of interfacing with with politicians and, and policymakers? Or wh- where do you feel in this next couple of years time would be best spent? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think that there's you know there's a there's a number of areas that we need more studies on. Um, again, you know, the the lack of evidence for some of the stuff that we've been doing the last 10 or 20 years is rather shocking. If you, you know, the, the, the FDA actually, you know, changed the label for sustained release opioids for long-term use um, when there was actually no placebo-controlled trial longer than, you know, 12 weeks. And, wow. you know, which, uh, again, kind of thinking about how, how much we use these medications, it, it's, it's pretty shocking. Um, and, and so, you know, the first long-term trial comparing, so this is long-term by, by what I mean one year, which is still not very long-term, you know, if you think about how long we often use opioids in patients. But a, a one-year trial is the longest study we have comparing an opioid versus a non-opioid therapy that that was done last year it was the space trial led by Aaron Krebs this is a this is a study of patients with chronic low back pain and osteoarthritis and it actually showed no difference between you know therapy initiated with an opioid um, that they had a stepped therapy algorithm versus therapy initiated with a non-opioid 
for either pain or function. And in fact, pain was slightly worse in people who received opioids. That's the only trial we have long-term comparing opioids versus non-opioids. And so, you know, I think the results were surprising. They kind of support the idea that opioids probably shouldn't be first-line therapies in most patients, but we need a lot more data to really understand what the best alternatives are, you know, whether those findings can be replicated in other settings. That study was conducted in a VA setting where there was a pretty integrated care system. Uh, people could do follow-up, you know, with uh, with their care coordinator electronically, things like that. It was a pretty active, hands-on, you know, approach, which, you know, many clinics may not be able to replicate. And so whether you can get the same results in other settings, in patients with other types of chronic pain, those are all important questions and I think need to be looked at. Uh, we also need to have long-term studies comparing opioids versus, you know, non-medication non approaches, you know, things like cognitive behavioral therapy, exercise therapy, interdisciplinary rehab. Um, so I think those are really important. Um, I think that the, the whole issue of, you know, approaches for tapering, so people who have indications to taper, but how do you best do it? How quickly should we do it? Um, what kinds of um, adjunctive treatments, behavioral supports, other medications can we do to kind of improve the, um, the effectiveness of tapering and also reduce any side effects or other um, harms that patients might experience? Uh, these are really important. Understanding how to treat pain as well as other associated issues in people who have substance use disorders or, or already on opioids when they come in, right? So if you have a patient who shows up in the emergency room with low back and say, and already is on an opioid, uh, how do you manage that patient? What if they have surgery? These kinds of things are really not very well studied. You know, people who have substance use disorders and other risk factors are typically excluded from randomized trials. And, you know, they, they, we often have very little information about, you know, best approaches for these. There are other populations that warrant other, you know, a lot of research. These include adolescents and young adults. You know, exposure to opioids in these populations can have important effects on neurodevelopment and future risk of substance use disorders and things like that. Um, and again, they have not been well studied in most trials, and as well as older patients who have comorbidities and may be at risk for opiate-related side effects and things like falls and fractures and stuff like that. Yeah, so that, that's just, I guess, just a sample. I mean, for the, on the acute pain side, I, I think we are trying to understand different approaches. So, you know, we, we do have, as I said before, we do have some evidence, you know, that we are able to predict how much patient, how much opioids and how long they'll require them after surgery, for example, based on how much they required on their last day, right? So you can, you can look how much, how much um, opioid somebody used in their last day in the hospital to predict how long and how much they'll require after their discharge. Um, and we also have data looking at how many pills somebody was given for a certain procedure and how many they actually took. And based on those, you can craft, you know, policies and algorithms about, you know, how much opioid to prescribe, but those really need to be tested. We need to understand, you know, not just, you know, how these things impact, you know, how much opioid a person takes, but also how it impacts pain and function, long-term outcomes, you know, whether they need a refill in the middle of the night, you know, those kinds of things. Um, 
which uh, at least to date have not been studied well. So just I, I guess that's a, a a lot of different areas, but you know just I guess just underscores that there's still some pretty big needs in this area. You know, as you're talking, Dr. Chow, you know, here we are in 2019, and obviously we come from our bias of, you know, of patient empowerment, uh, exercise perspective, hands-on care, spending time with uh, people, teaching them about pain, and knowing that even just spending time with someone will decrease the the amount of time, amount of uh, discomfort they're in. And it just seems like we're you know the the research that you're outlining you know is it the appropriate way as we look at trials et cetera versus we 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 created this epidemic storm based on a, frankly uh little evidence of benefit and a high evidence for harm you know to me worst case scenario is as you've wrote non pharmacological approaches should be tried first in in low back pain management yet our system absolutely does not incentivize those therapies, whether it be from massage therapy, physical therapy, yoga, in any of these kind of other therapies are, in fact, de- disincentivized based on, you know, co-payments and the like. And so, you know, we, we created this storm by now a industry that uh, f- that people now are going to prison or for as part of those industries that have legalized uh, that then there were drug providers essentially but uh, stood behind the facade of a pharmaceutical industry and I guess I, I guess I'm just more angry that uh, we that and I'm not convinced that the that going more studies slowly over time comparing opioids to these other things is is going to get us out of this mess and please convince me I'm a pessimist and that I'm I'm totally wrong. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I so so first of all, I'll say that you know the fact that jurisdictions have been so eager to implement policies, you know, is a sign that there is a willingness to act. And, you know, uh, you know, people can debate whether they've, you know, whether they've misapplied some of the policies. And and, and I'll, I'll just kind of, as a side note, just reiterate that the guidelines are not policy, right? The guidelines are supposed to give guidance for clinical practice and allow for individualization and all that. Policy is, you know, that's, that's, separate it's part of how guidelines are implemented but they're they're not the same thing but but i think it speaks to the fact that that there is a desire to act on it which is different than it was 10 or 15 years ago when we when we first you know i i led the american pain society american academy of pain medicine guideline back in 2009 on opioids for chronic pain it was i i think really one of the first major national efforts to to do that and when we would present that at meetings, people would get angry. It's like, what are you telling us, you know, not to, you know, that to be more cautious about using opioids, you know, how, you know, we, we had a 200 milligram suggested threshold. It wasn't even a hard threshold. It's like, you know, be cautious about, you know, when people get over 200 milligrams morphine equivalents and people were like angry and yelling at us for, you know, <laughs> wow. even saying that. And this was, you know, this was 10 years ago. And so things, I think the 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 overall environment has shifted. I, I think on the flip side, what concerns me is that, you know, there is some pushback and some backlash against 
policy efforts and guidelines. That's one of the reasons why we wanted to be clear about what the CDC guideline says. Um, and and I, I would do worry that that could undermine future efforts. So, so I do think we have to be diligent and continue to, you know, move forward based on the best science we have while advocating for patients and all that. Um, I, I think some of the issues that you're referring to are really important and, and also should be studied. You know, you can recommend all the non-pharmacologic approaches and active approaches you want, but if people don't have access to them, you know, that's not going to help. And so, you know, payers and policymakers need to buy in and enact policies to facilitate use of these things. I mean, you know, everybody thinks interdisciplinary rehab is a good idea for people who have very disabling chronic pain, but it's very difficult to get that in this country. Um, it's much easier to write a prescription for an opioid still. And and this is going to continue to be a barrier to using those types of therapies. And, you know, there are places that have tried to address this. So, for example, in Oregon, you know, we have our Oregon Health Plan, which is our Medicaid expansion. This was actually, you know, quite has been around for quite some time now. Um, and the way we expanded Medicaid in part was by prioritizing the conditions that would be covered uh, under the Oregon Health Plan. Um, so some conditions that are don't meet the threshold are not covered and the ones that are above the line are. And, you know, for many years, low back pain actually was below the line. So it was not covered, uh, covered condition. You couldn't, I couldn't get PT for those patients. It was you know, a pretty, you know, difficult situation to be in, but, but that has actually changed. It is now a covered condition and they are actually explicitly encouraging things like spinal manipulation, acupuncture, exercise therapy, CBT and cover and pain for it. And so there are places that are trying to, you know, enact policies that are consistent with what we're trying to tell people to do. Um, there's still, you know, tremendous barriers like, even if I know that I can have CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, covered uh, for a patient, it's still actually very difficult to find somebody who's available, takes the patient's insurance, actually deals with chronic pain. Uh, it's it's just really hard. And then the, the wait may be two, three, four weeks. And, you know, th these create tremendous barriers. And, and there's there are, I think there's systems levels approaches for how we manage these things. So, for example... Uh, ideally, you would have a cognitive behavioral therapy kind of integrated into a primary care practice where you could do a warm handoff and, you know, instead of telling a patient to make up, you know, schedule an appointment with a psychologist, you could actually have somebody in your clinic that you could send somebody to, you know, immediately or within a day. You can imagine a model with physical therapy embedded within a primary care practice um, or with same-day referrals. Um, which are, you know, not necessarily the case now. And and so, the, you know, those types of approaches, uh, those types of models, those integrated models of care, these, these I view as different from looking at which intervention works. It's trying to figure out, you know, okay, we know what works, but how do we actually deliver them in a way that is feasible and that, you know, will be most effective? Yeah, well stated. Well, 
Dr. Chow, thank you so, so much for uh, just your, really your dedication to to patients and dedication to the health of our society. Your work has, has been instrumental in moving uh, many professions forward towards a better approach to managing folks that are suffering from chronic pain and various pain disorders. So, you know, as we come to a close, would you mind uh, letting listeners know how to how to find you if you're on social media, Twitter, or any, uh, or just uh, how to find more about your work? Yeah, you know, I actually do not do uh, Twitter. <laughs> um, uh-huh. I've been suggested that I do, but I have not gone there. I, I'm re- I'm pretty easy to find. I'm at ohsu.edu. I've got they've got a web page up, and I can be contacted through there. Folks want to get in touch. All right. Well, again, thanks so much for for all you do, and thanks for taking the time to come on the podcast and share your work. And we look forward to to continuing to follow you and making sure that we get your message out as we see information come out from your group and the the colleagues that you're working with there out in Oregon. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Well, what a what a great conversation with Dr. Roger Chow. There's nobody you'd rather talk to than somebody who has had a, a huge influence in the gathering and translating of, of data that has been collected, but also is active in clinical practice. So understands kind of the nuances and the importance of you know those two things working together, but ultimately not for one side or the other, but for the overall best interest of society. So incredible to, to hear him discuss kind of his adventures and, and his forays into both of those worlds. Uh, we look very much forward to, to meeting with Dr. Chow again and following his work. If you have not read that editorial, it's only a couple of pages and really is a, is a neat um, call to caution to, to not overinterpret uh, some of the findings that came out a couple of years ago and to make sure we keep a balanced approach. Uh, as always, be willing to be in the gray uh, in the management of an issue that requires such. So thanks everyone for being here. Thanks, Dr. Chow. Uh, thanks to my colleague, Tim Flynn. As always, we are at um, ispinstitute.com. Uh, check out all the courses there. A lot of great things coming up this year into 2020. So make sure you're tracking those courses. Thanks for the sponsorship from ISPI. Uh, You can check us out on social media as well. Um, ISPI as well as Tim and myself. Um, Looking forward to engaging with you all and see you next time on the next episode of Pain Reframed. Pain Reframed is brought to you by our sponsor, the International Spine and Pain Institute. Check out their transformative pain science programming at ispinstitute.com.